0: Welcome back to Bible Love. Today is special. It's always special when we have Dr. Tony, but it's especially special when we have Dr. Tony on his birthday. So um, folks from St. Martin's know every week we pray for folks celebrating milestones in their lives. And so we pray the birthday blessing. And so um, we wanted to pray this with and for you, Tony. So let us pray. Oh God, our times are in your hands. Look with favor, we pray, on your servant Tony as he begins another year. Grant that he may grow in wisdom and grace and strengthen his trust in your goodness all the days of his life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you.
1: birthday, Tony. Thank you. Hopkins.
2: Thank you. How lovely.
1: We love you so much. And you really need no introduction. It's the great Reverend Dr. Tony Hopkins here. But we are starting a new book of the Bible today. We've just finished Ecclesiastes. Um, Tony did the overview for that. And then we had the lovely, wonderful, the Reverend Dr. Alexis Carter-Thomas with us kind of going through that. And now we're starting on a new book, which is I told Tony and Alan, I don't know a lot about, it's not, it's pretty short um, yeah. and it's sort easy of read. What, a very easy read, but um, the way we're going to start this off is, so some of you may know it as the Song of Songs and some of you may know it as the Song of Solomon. And so Tony, tell us why it might, has two different names and then tell us all about it.
2: I'm glad to. And thanks, guys. Thanks for the beautiful prayer. Um, This book in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew calls it the greatest song or the most excellent song, uh, which idiomatically could be the song of songs. And so some translations use that name. Uh, The Latin is my favorite canticle of canticles, which means song of songs. But Solomon is mentioned in the very first verse of the Bible. I think that was probably added late to help get this book into the canon. But English translators picked up on that and called it the um, Song of Solomon. This book, like some of the others we've looked at recently, uh, is in that third part of the Hebrew Bible, the Law, then the Prophets, and then the Writings. This is one of the Writings. And like uh, Ecclesiastes that we've already done and Esther that we've already done, this is one of the five festal scrolls, one of the Medelot. Uh, Each of the five major Jewish festivals has a book that became associated with it, was read during the festival. And fascinatingly to me, the Song of Songs was read at Passover, Nobody really knows how this connection came to be, but uh, Hebrew scholars speculate, think about Passover, death, slavery. And so here is a book that is the opposite of that, with its passion and romance and excitement. And so scholars speculate that maybe this book was read at Passover to try to bring some balance to the somber tones that, that Passover celebration had as part of it. Yeah.
0: This it's is, got
1: some romance, Tony. It's got some romance. It's um, got
2: some romance. I, I
1: like, whoo! You know, am I reading a um romance novel? What's going on? The joke,
2: the joke yeah. among youth ministers is this is how you get youth to read the Bible. Is
1: right,
0: it, right. It, it I remember. Youth. When I was in college, you know, way back when, um, I did a college ministry, and the biggest growth this college ministry saw is when we did the video series by, there was a, there is a pastor at Denton Bible Church, Tommy Nelson. He's still there. He's been there forever. He did this video series in the 90s on Song of Solomon. It's like 12 weeks, and like, it started out with our small, and then we're inviting our friends, we're inviting the girls we think are cute, we're doing... Like we, and you know it's evangelical to its core, and it but it helped me think that, like this Bible actually matters to me like, yeah. well, nineteen year old Alan was thinking one thing, but like the Bible's actually applicable to real life stuff, yeah, and, and that's a good word, Alan,
2: and that's what y'all have discovered, we have discovered during this journey is the Bible is not just pie in the sky, the Bible is about the real life and the real world. And the people who put the canon in the form that we have it had the wisdom to say this is part of, of real life. The book is about romantic, passionate, even erotic love. It has always made religious leaders nervous. And so both the rabbis and the church fathers allegorized it. They said, oh, this is an allegory about the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. This is an allegory about the relationship between Christ and the church. And when I try to be objective, I mentioned in the notes, modern literary critics acknowledge that the reader can find things in the text that that maybe the author didn't intend. And I guess if you say that, then you can interpret this book allegorically. But it's hard to do so otherwise. This book, along with the book of Esther, are the only two books of the Bible that don't mention God. There's no explicit mention of God or Yahweh. But think about in Esther, when we did Esther, the Jews, God's people, are mentioned over and over. There is explicit reference to prayer and fasting and sackcloth and ashes all of those things were part of the ritual life of the Hebrew faith. There is nothing like that in the Song of Songs. Nothing ritual, nothing religious, nothing faith-based faith-based. This is all about love and passion.
1: Well, and I really appreciate you saying like the festival and like trying to make it lighthearted and and because of the seriousness of all that. Because I do sometimes, and I felt this way about Ecclesiastes, like. Why is this in the Bible? You know, and so I do that's really helpful to me because sometimes you're just like, I mean, maybe it is to get you kids involved in church, you know, maybe it is for for us to all see ourselves in the Bible, but you're all a lot of times you're like, huh. So that's that's actually a very practical reason of why it's there. And that's kind of helpful to me when I think about these old guys putting the Bible together, you know, and the Canon and why they would choose those things. So I
2: picture, I picture one old rabbi who had the courage to say, look, we all remember when we were young and when we were falling in love with our wives and what that was like. Right. And, and so again, boy, this is, this is, this is part of life. And On the one hand, it's very realistic. On the other hand, in the way that young lovers do, they idealize each other. The woman compares the man to King Solomon. Now, remember, we think about Solomon's wisdom, but the Hebrew Bible says that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So I think the assumption in this book is, well, anybody with that many wives and concubines must have been a pretty great lover. So when a woman calls her man, King Solomon, (laughs) that's a great compliment. He idealizes her, how beautiful you are. He says, there is no flaw in you. My beloved is perfect. That is young love. Yeah. And, and interestingly to me, some of the language and imagery translates across time. It's part of literature in the English, springtime, the association of springtime with love and romance and fertility. We have that in our literature. Um, the, uh, The man, the woman says to the man, you're like a gazelle, you are like a stag. These were animals known for their beauty and their fertility. He says, you're like a dove or a fawn, these beautiful animals. Uh, he says, my love is a lily among the brambles. Compared, Other women compared to my love are like thorns, and she's a lily. That, that communicates in our culture. She says, he is like an apple tree among trees of wood. So both of those images, the lily and the apple tree, greater beauty, and greater fertility. Apple trees bear fruit, bear trees do not. Lilies pollinate, brambles do not. So in a way that that we can relate to this romantic imagery, poetic imagery, at the same time, there are some metaphors. He says to her, your neck is like the Tower of David. It would be like us saying your neck is like the Washington Monument. I'm not sure my wife wants me to say that about her. But in that culture, having a long slender neck was associated with beauty, with attractiveness. Yes, Mary Balfour. Yes. Um, One of the, one of the really interesting differences, she complains about being, tanned about being out in the sun so much that her skin has turned dark. In our culture, people want to be tanned. That's associated with attractiveness. But in ancient cultures, and to be honest, even in European and American culture, until very recently, women in particular wanted to be fair-skinned. That was considered beautiful, and it was also kind of a status thing If you were dark skinned, it let everybody know you had to tend your own garden. People of a certain status had others tending their garden and they didn't get tanned. Um, My favorite one in the book is he says to her, your hair is like a flock of goats coming down a mountain. Again, probably not something I would say to Carol, (laughs) but y'all. If you've been anywhere, I said in the notes, Israel. But if you've been anywhere that's mountainous, imagine standing a long way away and hear these goats winding their way down the mountain as a woman with long wavy hair walks away from you. That's what it looks like. It's it's an ingenious image, um, but so isn't that interesting? How we're talking about romantic poetry some of the images are ones that that we've used in our culture some are pretty different from our culture
1: yeah well okay so next week Murray and I will have been married eight years so you right. know I remember that young love and what that all that is but also Murray is a poet so I'm sitting there thinking I want he went into song of song of songs and so because he always writes about me and this this beautiful poetry, but it it kind of related in a, in some ways to me. It made me think of you know young love and what that feels like, and you know writing these beautiful things about women, um, where sometimes women in the Bible really get beat up a lot, you know, and and so um, it feels like a better imagery of women in some way. I don't know. Um, Although there's also that other side of the that women are not all about beauty. We have intellect and brains and, you know, all of those things. So it's, it's just sort of interesting to think through a little bit. Well, the other
2: thing that even modern readers, I mean, when I read song of songs, I think about Shakespeare, the double entendre, the double meaning, the pun, Um, this book, uh, let us go and lie down in the pasture. And I mean, there's lying down and pasturing and grazing and tasting and sipping and drinking. And just like in uh, English literature, all of those things have a literal meaning and they have a metaphorical meaning. And, And then I wanted to mention there are two things that because of cultural differences would really lend themselves to misunderstanding if we don't clarify them. One is that both the man and the woman talk about uh, having a romantic encounter at the place where the other was born. Hmm. Now you talk about teenagers. I don't want to think about where I was conceived, where I was born. I mean, you know, I don't want to think about any of that, but in this culture, places had connotations of fertility. And so, a place that someone else had been conceived, a place that someone else had been born. Th- that that's why you find that in the book. That doesn't fit our culture, but that would not have raised anybody's eyebrows. The other thing that's interesting is the woman will, in the same sentence, call her husband, her husband and her brother. He will, in the same sentence, say, "My bride, uh, my sister." And that seems strange to us. And I laughed because uh, the people who did the notes for the Harper Collins study Bible, the, the editor said, this does not mean consanguinity. He wouldn't even use the word incest. <laughs> I thought we're still very, you know, we're still anxious about these kind of cultural codes. But all the woman is saying is when she says, if you were my brother, then I could kiss you and embrace you in public and nobody would say anything about it. But because we have to hide our romance, I can't do that. And I wish I could. That's, that's all that means. So don't make that something that it doesn't mean.
1: Well, I think that's so important to clarify because if you're just (laughs) reading, you'd be like, what, you know? And, and I think that's part of what's hard sometimes about reading the Hebrew Bible is because like you were saying, fertile places. That's not something we know about right now, you know, in our lives. And, um, you know, this brother, sister, but you're my husband, you know, I would have re- taken that very literally, you know, at, sometimes.
0: It reminds me there's a meme, maybe you saw it on Facebook in the last week or so. It talks about how we can't understand the nuance of biblical language. And in the essence of Song of Songs, it says 2000 years from now, Someone's going to unearth text messages, one that says butt dial, one that says booty call. Yeah. <laughs> right? Those are two vastly different things. Yes. And so, but 200 but we years ago, know the they difference. may not realize that. So, yeah. that, that's
1: all that means, too. Yeah. It's so that's true. A great,
2: that's a great illustration.
1: Yeah, it's because um, need to understand. Because,
2: yeah. But, and now, the other thing I want to say about Song of Songs is, um, how remarkably culturally subversive it is, especially because of the role of the woman. This is something that you might not really pay attention to. I mean, depending on whom you read, this is anywhere from half a dozen to 30 poems. Um, And some of them, you could make an argument, but some of them, it's pretty clear. This is the woman speaking. This is the man speaking. She speaks more than he does. In the context of a very patriarchal society, she speaks more seductively than he does. She's the pursuer more often, while he is the pursuee. And again, if we're not careful, we just read our norms back onto the text. So I, you can find a dozen commentators that say, here's a couple As they are on the journey toward marriage, or they will even say, here they're married and now they're reflecting back on their courtship. But that's really not in the text. The text doesn't say anything about that. I think that has made interpreters more comfortable with that. But most remarkably, is this woman we've talked about on the podcast. Esther and Ruth are the only two books of the Bible named for women. And so rightly, they get attention for that. But this woman, she defies the codes of the culture, which, of course, were defined by men. She defies the expectations of her family, which were defined by the men in her family. In chapter eight, her brothers say she's just a little girl. They say she doesn't have breasts. So she's, they tried to define her as prepubescent. You're not ready for serious romance. You're not ready for love. And she says, I am quite mature enough. Thank you. And the only man whose opinion matters at all is that of my lover. So, so she defies her family. She subverts cultural expectations in her way she may be the strongest woman in the bible and because this book doesn't get read very much that that sort of gets overlooked and and i don't want it to
1: and we don't even know her name
2: <clears throat> yeah
1: like well and, and
2: and and often in scripture that is gender related but here's a case we don't know his name either right. and and, just- and and that's a poetic I mean, these two, these are every people. She's an every woman. He's an every man. Because if you've ever been young, I mean, Mary Balfour, you talked about Murray's poetry. I moved recently. So, of course, when you move, you dig out all the stuff that's just stuck in the corners of closets. I have a whole box of notes that Carol and I wrote to each other the year I was off in seminary and she was still at Furman. We were young and in love. My children would not want to read any of those. Not that they were sexually explicit, but they are ooey gooey, Gooey. dripping with romance, you know? Um, And so this has that same sort of feel. Yeah. The the other thing I want to say is uh, while the book has no sense of shame, While it is very comfortable with with romance and eroticism, with naming body parts and uh, explicit come into my bedchamber, all of that. But at the same time, it builds toward in chapter eight, a beautiful sort of um, philosophical explanation of, of love as the greatest force in the world. If, if, if love is a fire, even a flood can't put it out. Um, and finally, the writer says, we think of death as the most powerful and most permanent thing in life in this world. Not so. Just as strong, just as powerful is love. So while in terms of volume, there's more passion and eroticism. There is this wonderful kind of ideological proclamation that the thing most to be valued, you know, their culture was like our culture and that what a lot of people wanted was to be rich. This says, listen, if you have love, sell everything you have. Um, and so yeah. it's really... It's, it's both passionate and poetic.
1: It is very um, Romeo, Juliet, like, you know, when you were talking about um, the Shakespeare and it does have like, it's a story almost, even though it's poetry, it, it's there, you know, how they, and it ends in this beautiful way. I mean, I was thinking about, I'm in eight, uh, verse six, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love as strong as death, passion fierces the grave. It flashes, our flashes of fire, a raging flame. That's the one you were just talking about. This is yes. RSV. Um, I mean, you know, that's, that reminds me of that scene from Romeo and Juliet, you know, where sure. they were like.
2: And, and the seal, you know, the seal upon your heart, you know, important documents, they would close them, drip wax onto them. And then there was a seal that was impressed so so your, your seal has been pressed onto my heart a, as if my heart were wax. And and that's going to be there now forever. You know, it's 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 really quite lovely
1: in its way. It is. Well, I'm just so glad to know more and understand. And I'm I'm always like so curious when something really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things in the Bible. The whole Bible is interesting, but this kind of different book and and why it's there. And um as always, Dr. Tony, you just did a great job of telling well, us all. This right? is
2: always such a joy. And I'm gonna say if you guys play your cards right, you can get a whole bunch of teenage subscribers
1: now. Maybe so. Maybe so. And you will be back with us very soon to talk about idea <laughs> and um, listeners, as always remember we love you, but most importantly God does.